Hey folks, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are taking a break from our latest sermon series. Enjoy this standalone episode. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Good and gracious Father, we thank you for another Sunday of gathering together to worship and hear your word. God, I'm thankful for the people that occupy the seats tonight, the kids and those teaching them. Lord, I pray that we come to you this evening with open ears to hear and open hearts to accept anything you're trying to communicate. Please protect the words that leave my mouth so that all I say is pleasing to you and to your son. Amen. So tonight I only have like 135 slides. So I'm not Josh. (laughs) Nope. All right. So the text for tonight comes from Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. After he entered the Pharisee's home, he took his place at the table. Meanwhile, a woman from the city, a sinner, discovered that Jesus was dining in the Pharisee's house. She brought perfumed oil in a vase made of alabaster. Standing behind him at his feet and crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the oil on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw what was happening, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. He would know that she is a sinner. Jesus replied, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, speak, he said. A certain lender had two debtors. One owed enough money to pay 500 people for a day's work. The other owed enough money for 50. When they couldn't pay, the lender forgave the debts of both. Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the largest debt canceled. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? When I entered your home, you didn't give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has poured perfumed oil on my feet. This is why I tell you that her many sins have been forgiven, so she has shown great love. The one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other table guests began to say among themselves, who is this person that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So tonight, I thought I would go through this passage and try to unpack it, make some observations, and hopefully highlight some practical connections to our daily lives. So let's start with the first few verses. Verse 36b says, after he entered the Pharisee's home, he took his place at the table. In many other translations, they say that Jesus was reclined at the table. 
At this time, the participants of the dinner or the banquet would have been reclined at the table. So I wanted a visual representation of what this would look like for a point that I'm gonna make in a minute or two. So yesterday, scrolling through uh, the internet, went on Google to try to find the picture that I had seen before but hadn't saved. So I go to Google and I type in Luke 7, 36 through 50 and click on images. I'm not sure how I got to this, but here's what I found. The internet's a crazy place, people. <laughs> so then, <laughs> it's a video. It's a, it's a video. So then I'm like, I can shrink the whole sermon down to five minutes and 30 seconds by just playing this and calling it a day. But... Um, I'm a little afraid that it's, you know, a little too racy for this crowd, so you all can watch it on your own time. But I also found these, which I just couldn't resist, because <laughs> I love this. So I'm a sucker for Barbie, because I equate it with my, you know, carefree, happy childhood. So when I saw Barbie as the sinful woman, <laughs> it's like a gold mine. I had to include it. And then here's Ken as the Simon the Pharisee. <laughs> Another side note, I vividly remember a Ken doll that I inherited as a child, remember? Yeah, so I'm not sure which of the three sisters that it belonged to, but my brother, who is the middle, smack dab in the middle of the birth order, which if that gives you any indication, he took some sort of permanent marker. I don't even think Sharpies existed back then. And he dotted, <laughs> he made a Ken he made him have a nice beard and goatee and mustache, and it really reminded me of that. So he also has nothing to do with the sermon, but one year, probably the same year, he took, I got a Play-Doh oven, and it had a little skillet, and when you press down on the Play-Doh with the spatula, it made a sizzling noise. But he took my play horses that I got for Christmas and put the play horses on the skillet and made them sizzle too. So that's just a little bonus there. It's thought that the dinner at the Pharisee's house was more than just a dinner. According to commentaries, it was more likely a banquet than it was a dinner with many people in attendance. There would have been people, would have been a packed room with people lining the perimeter of the room. Lots of people, lots of things going on. But here you'll notice how they are reclined, like on their elbow, kind of on a futon-like thing. Uh, so that'll make sense in a minute. The text says, meanwhile, a woman from the city, a sinner, discovered that Jesus was dining in the Pharisee's house. The first thing I'd like to call your attention to is the designation that the woman was a sinner. Tuck that one away for just a bit. I don't know about you, but I'd love to know how this woman, number one, how she found out about the dinner at the Pharisee's house. The very fact that one, she's a woman, and two, she's being coined a sinner, rules out a personal invitation by the Pharisee. Her lack of social status would certainly negate being privy to such information as a private dinner banquet with Jesus. I don't have the answer as to how she found out or to how she got there, but I think it's pretty cool to consider how it might have been. And I think it's even cooler that she had the bravery to show up. In Luke's account, it says that she brought perfumed oil in a vase made of alabaster. 
standing behind him at his feet and crying. She began to wet and wipe his feet with tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured oil on them. Now, you'd think that this would be something that would stick out like a sore thumb at a dinner party. But as I said, there were a lot of people in the room, most likely, and a lot going on, and it wouldn't be something that would stick out. If we have a lot of people, the feet are out. She could have been sitting there without too much notice at first. So picture this, if you will. We have a woman that's so transparent, so emotional, so filled with love and gratitude that she weeps, literally, at the feet of Jesus. So here's where I'd like to take a little sidetrack. In verse 39, it says, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw what was happening, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. He would know that she is a sinner. This summer, I learned about different interpretive practices, which includes not only types of critical methods, but also different hermeneutics. Biblical hermeneutics are, in a sense, the lenses that we read Scripture with. No two people read Scripture the same because we bring our unique life experiences with us when we read and when we interpret the Bible. Our lives and the things that we've experienced, good and bad, shape how shape and impact how we read and how we interpret God's Word. And it's been pretty awesome to be exposed to and to learn about all these different lenses that people bring with them to Scripture. I continue to learn that real growth happens when you go beyond the interpretation that you're familiar with and look further. Looking at a Scripture with a viewpoint that's different than our own has the potential to ruffle feathers or make us feel uncomfortable, but it's an essential part of reading the Bible well. Which takes me to this next observation. Let me ask you this. When you learn this story, whenever it may have been, what did you assume about the woman, the sinful woman? Prostitute. Prostitute, right. Most of us have operated under the assumption that this woman was a prostitute or guilty of some kind of sexual sin, like prostitution. But nowhere in the scripture, in any of the different translations, does it ever say what this woman's sin was. We always operated under this assumption. Let me go just a bit further and ask the question. In the Bible, when a man's sin is mentioned, is it ever assumed that their sin is sexual in nature? Typically, I would say not. Is this the assumption that the readers immediately make about men? So I just find this fascinating to think about the differences between what we assume about women in the Bible and men. You see, when you come to Scripture with different lenses, you can dig so much further into the Bible. This may be stretching things, but I think it's worthy to ask why this and other women's sins are automatically considered to be sexual while men's sins are not. Of course, it goes without saying that this was a patriarchal society and women camped out much farther down the social ladder than men did at the same time. But I've asked myself whether it could be that this was a way in which a woman could be discredited, could be a way to keep them from being able to stake claim to any real societal or religious contributions of the day. 
This is important to consider because it continues to have implications on women in the church today. There are many denominations that would not allow this to happen for a woman to be up in front preaching. This is totally my opinion coming out here, but I think that we have to be diligent. We have to question the status quo in the church. There were many decisions that were made in the ancient Near Eastern society that negatively impacted women. What was at the heart of these decisions and should the standards from thousands of years ago drive modern day decisions about the role of women in the church? We might glean some insight from what Pete Enns writes in his book, How the Bible Actually Works. He talks about the social ladder in Paul's time and how women clearly camped out on a rung that was below men and how women's rights as we know them today were most likely not on Paul's radar. He asserts that as much as we would have liked Paul to completely light a match to the social ladder, doing so would not have been beneficial at the time. Ends writes, Paul's comments about women straddled the line between social expectations of the day and Christian liberation from those expectations. To have obliterated those expectations would have impeded his mission to spread the gospel. Today, cultural expectations are not what they were in the Roman Empire of Paul's time, and it's our responsibility to likewise be aware of those expectations and not obliterate them lest the mission of spreading the gospel be compromised. He also says, Paul brought gender equality into his world as far as he could. Christians today can and should build on that wise trajectory and take it farther. So regardless of what the woman's sin was, it was implied that it was a sexual one. For goodness sakes, one of the commentaries that I read referred to her only as a harlot. When the Pharisee asked Jesus if he knows what kind of woman is touching him, a myriad of assumptions should jump off the page. Makes it more impressive, even more impressive and revolutionary that Jesus responds the way that he does. He responds not with condemnation, but with the parable of the two debtors. One owes approximately two days worth of wages and the other owes a year and three quarters of wages. When they couldn't make their payments to the lender, he forgives their debt, free and clear, no strings attached. Jesus asked the question, which one of the debtors will love the lender more? Simon correctly responds, the one with more debt. Jesus replies, you have judged correctly. I love the thought of that scene. Why, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) He knew what he was doing, didn't he? So his parable succinctly gets his point across and in a way traps Simon in this web of a story. Of course, the one with the most debt will be the one who loves more. But Simon and everyone listening to this exchange will instantly know that this parable means so much more. Imagine Simon when he realizes that indeed the lender is God, the debtors are sinners, the woman and himself, and what has been forgiven is sin instead of wages. You got him again, Jesus. Most likely, I doubt that Simon would have thought of himself as needing forgiveness. And if we're honest with ourselves, myself included, I tend to think that we probably relate more to Simon than we do to the woman. When we hear stories like this, 
Do we automatically think of others whose sins seem worse than our own? It's so much easier, and might I say lazier, to judge others. The story continues. Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? When I entered your home, you didn't give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has poured perfumed oil on my feet. This is why I tell you that her many sins have been forgiven. So she has shown great love. The one who is forgiven little loves little. As my children might say, Jesus threw some shade on the Pharisee. The text says that Jesus turned away from Simon and faced the woman. Up to this point, Jesus was facing Simon, so I would consider the change in body language to really be a bold statement. There were three things that the woman did that Simon neglected to do. First, she washed his feet with her tears. To wash his feet with water was a customary form of hospitality, but this was also a sign of humility, of transparency, and of reverence to Jesus. Secondly, she kisses his feet when Simon had not even kissed his head upon arrival. Kissing one's head upon arrival was a customary form of hospitality in the first century Jewish culture. Here, the woman doesn't kiss Jesus' head, but she kisses his feet. What an incredibly intimate and respectful act that she bestows upon him. Just a side note, and here's probably more than you want to know about my family, but in my household, people act like feet are poison. (laughs) If we're lying on the couch and my foot accidentally touches any one of them, what happens? Yeah, you jump and they scream. So I was telling the story to the kids the other day how Tracy and I have been married for 22 years and he's rubbed my feet once, one time in 22 years. And that was after my mom's funeral and he felt pretty bad for me. So for me, (laughs) the woman's humble act of kissing Jesus' feet is even more meaningful. The third act is anointing Jesus' feet with oil. For a host to anoint a guest's head with oil would have, would have been expected, but would have been, been described as a special courtesy. But Simon doesn't do this either. It makes for an even bigger contrast when the woman anoints his feet with oil, not his head, his feet. So a little side note, the oil that was used would have been along the lines of a quality of an olive oil. But the woman uses an expensive perfume to anoint his feet. This oil was made from pure nard. (laughs) Anybody get it? I guess so. It was a plant that was grown in the Himalayas and it was worth about 300 denarii, which would have been approximately $55,000 in today's currency. So the other gospel accounts they focus more on the perceived wastefulness of what she has done. The fact that she used it on Jesus when it could have been sold and provided so much for the poor. But instead, the account in Luke focuses on the implications of the woman's actions. 
So then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other table guests began to say among themselves, who is this person that even forgives sins? I think we can all imagine to a certain extent the reaction of the Pharisees when Jesus makes the bold proclamation, your sins are forgiven. Simon and the other Pharisees immediately question who this Jesus is, who he thinks he is for forgiving a sin. The only person, the only entity that can forgive sin is God or on behalf of God. So Jesus's language in this phrase, in this passage, the I say to you phrase makes it clear that his words are coming from God. The claim he is making does not come from a mere prophet. I think in this situation, you would either have to believe that Jesus is much, much more than a prophet or he's totally crazy. The question raised of who this Jesus is begs the reader to approach the passage with the foreshadowing details of Jesus's trial. In Luke 23:3, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? So instead of addressing the audience, Jesus chooses instead to respond only to the woman. Your faith has saved you, go in peace. These simple words spoken by Jesus assure the woman that because of her faith, she has been saved. I want to point one more thing out about the woman. She is silent throughout this entire story. She never speaks a single word. Her actions are louder than the words. As I've mentioned, she's humble and transparent and grateful and loving. Jesus sees her and knows these qualities about her by her actions. Her faith in him has saved her from her sinful life, whatever that sin was and whatever her life was. So one of the points I'd like to make tonight is this. First, the woman is judged because of her sin, but secondly, she's judged because of her expressions of faith. Her loving, reverent actions made others feel uncomfortable. So here's a question for us all to ponder as we take on a new week. Do we judge others' expressions of faith? Do we only validate others' expressions of faith if they look like ours? This action can take us down a really narrow and a really potentially dangerous pathway. I think that unfortunately, judging others' expressions of faith happens more often than not. It's human nature to be drawn toward what we find familiar. But think of how much we could grow if we open our minds and our hearts to new and different things. We don't have to look much further than the dichotomy between black and white churches. I could go much further than simply pointing out the differences in worship styles, but I'll tuck that one away for another evening. We become so comfortable with what we're used to culturally denominationally, even congregationally. I would just like to encourage us to have open minds. Those aforementioned hermeneutical lenses that I was talking about, they come into play again right here. We tend to bring what we know and what we're comfortable with when we express our faith in God. Consider others and their faith expressions Let us not be so quick to judge others simply because it's different. 
I also want to point out the transformative power of Jesus. At the beginning of the story, we had the Pharisee or the religious elite with the position of power. The woman who's characterized only as sinful has little to no status, excluded in society because of her sins. I don't know if you caught this. It took me many, many read-throughs to catch it, but I recognize that Simon questioned that Jesus was a prophet because he allowed this woman to touch him. Simon didn't speak this aloud. He only thought it to himself. So Jesus knew his thoughts and proceeded to tell the parable and essentially the shaming of Simon. It was the woman who kissed Jesus, washed his feet, and anointed him with oil. All the things that the host should have done. The tables are turned at this point. Jesus points this out, and because of the woman's faith, she's forgiven from her sins. She's been released from a tremendous debt, just like the debtor in the parable. Jesus has this transformative power 2,000 plus years later. Faith in Jesus is what it takes. So I'd like to make the assertion tonight that just like Jesus, we should be disrupting conversations with the radical news of the gospel. And if it makes people uncomfortable, like it did the Pharisees, then so be it. The thought that keeps popping into my mind is break our hearts for what breaks yours. It's through Jesus's love and forgiveness of sins that God's love shines through. It shines through the love and the forgiveness that he shows the woman in our story. And it still shines today through the forgiveness of sins that we receive on Jesus's behalf. Let us not take that incomprehensible gift for granted. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.